Turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. At this church, we've been studying the book of Hebrews for a number of months now. A book that was written, a letter, in fact, written to uh, followers of Jesus in the first decades of the church who, because of the gospel, were being viciously persecuted, mistreated, losing homes, family occupations, and they were tempted to give up. And the author of Hebrews has been writing to show them there's nothing, nothing you can turn to that is greater than Jesus Christ. No hope except for him. And then we reach this point where he lists in chapter 11 examples of people, men and women, who who followed God in faith even in the midst of great difficulty and received uh, for that, in that, the reward of faith. And then we reach chapter 12. I'm going to read this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever, like me, uh, watched a movie that you were expecting to be of one genre and it ended up another. Maybe the trailer had misled you. Maybe you just didn't know what you're getting into and you thought it was a comedy and it ended up a horror movie. Or you believed and had been told by your wife it was an action movie and it turned out a sappy romance or uh, my books will do the same thing to you my son and I we, we try to read every night together and the book that he wanted to do next was Frankenstein perhaps expecting a horror story about monsters instead it's a we're discovering it's a deep dive into the relationship between man and the natural world as he desires to conquer nature and discovers the pain of our separation from our creator and the importance of family relationships and friendship and love and at some point my son asked does he ever say fire bad like that's 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 what i want from frankenstein that's it What kind of story is this? Sometimes we ask in the middle of a book, in the middle of a movie, in the middle of a play, in the middle of an opera we don't understand. And likewise, we'll ask the same question about the story of our own life. What kind of story is my life supposed to be? Because right now, depending on what's happening, I'm not sure. Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Is it a romance? Is it a documentary? I don't know. And more importantly, what will the end of my story be like? What's it working towards? To answer that question, we need to see our story, our life, from God's perspective. He alone knows what he's doing in our life. But to understand our life and to see it from God's perspective, we need to see the whole story, not just one scene or one moment. It's for this reason that the author of Hebrews said in 1036, you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he went on to spend the next 40 or so verses giving examples of the people of God who endured, not because their lives made sense or were easy, 
But because they trusted God and the promises he had given, they trusted the one who was writing the story. And how much more so for us, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, who have received something better, who are witnesses to the resurrection, the the great event that, that so much of this in the past was leading up to. But enduring to the end is not easy. And our lives probably feel a lot less like a story, which we can pause when we want or skip ahead the parts we don't like or maybe flip to the end and see how it turns out. Our lives are not so much like a story in that sense as they are like a race. A race in which we get tired and distracted and weary and demotivated and begin to question who talked us into this in the first place. And when that happens, says the author of Hebrews, you need to do one thing. You need to fix your focus. As we just sang a few minutes ago, from the shifting shadows of the earth, we will fix our eyes on him. That's what chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking to Jesus. And that word looking is not glancing, not just taking in something like a scenery. It's, It's gazing with a fixed gaze. It's looking intently. It's not letting anything else distract you, but zeroing in on Jesus. Now, what does that mean, however? Does that mean we have a picture or sculpture of Jesus that we fix our eyes on? No. Is it we mentally picture a story or event? Well, not quite. We need to focus, the author of Hebrews is telling us, on several things about Jesus if we are to endure in the race that he has given us. I want to look at three of those things that we get in these three verses. First, we focus on how he has been faithful. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, to some of us, if you're like me, being surrounded by a crowd of people is not motivating it's anxiety-inducing. I know your pastor's afraid of crowds. Just that's just God has a sense of humor, uh, especially if that crowd of people are supposed to be witnesses. If they're watching you, thankfully, that's not what this verse means. That's not what witnesses means here. They're not spectators who are witnessing you and watching you and critiquing you and observing you. The word witness should be understood more in the judicial sense or the journalistic sense as someone who has seen something and then bears witness to it and talks about it and can tell about it. It also means to testify. And in the Greek, the original language that this letter was written in, uh, the word translated here, witnesses, is the same word that becomes the English word martyr. Because a martyr, someone who is killed for their belief or their faith, is someone who boldly and to the death would bear witness, would testify to the gospel. And so when we look back on all the verses that came before this, in fact, the whole of chapter 11 is name after name after name of people who acted on the word of God and who lived as if his promises could be trusted, and they testify, their lives bear witness that God is faithful. God can be trusted. He follows through on what he says he'll do. So the witnesses here in verse 1 are women and men of faith who tell stories about the things that they have seen God do. Like we sometimes sing in the modern hymn, O Church Arise, we sing, As saints of old still line the way, 
retelling triumphs of your grace. People of God throughout the ages, from the Old Testament and all the years from then until now, they do for us what Psalm 145 declares. And I have to say, whenever I think of children's ministry and what's going on upstairs in our children's training time right now, this is the verse I think of. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. We need that. Our children need to hear us speak of the mighty works of God and tell stories of how he's been faithful in our lives. We all need that. We need to hear from one another, from previous generations still living and those who have gone on to their rest in the Lord. We need to hear of the mighty deeds of the Lord and hear as others bear witness to the faithfulness of God. In fact, Paul tells us this is one of the reasons that the Old Testament is given to us. The stories are preserved and passed on is for us. In Romans 15, Paul says, whatever was written in the former days, speaking of the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that as you read the stories of God's faithfulness to to Noah or to Sarah and Abraham, to Moses, to Rahab, to Ruth, to David, to Samuel, you read that and you are encouraged because God is faithful. God can be trusted. And the people of God throughout the ages have gone through the same things and far worse than we experience today and are called to endure today. And through it all, they bear witness that God is faithful. Therefore, as verse 1 says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The audience, the original audience of Hebrews was trusting God and they were suffering as a result, being persecuted as a result. Now when we follow God, do we expect that it will always be rainbows and sunshine and popularity and prosperity? If we do, I don't know what Bible we're reading. Because all too often in the history of God's people, Obedience and faithfulness bring persecution and struggle. And when that happens, that's when temptation starts to whisper in our ear, hey, just, just do what everybody else is doing. You know, just, just believe what everyone around you believe. Just live the way they live. God, what he really wants is for you to be happy. God wants you to be comfortable. As the serpent whispered in Eve's ear in the garden, God's keeping his best from you. God knows that there's something better out there, and he's keeping it from you. These temptations, these distractions, what they do, they weigh us down. Everything that hinders and the sin which clings closely. It's an image of someone running a race as if they're running a marathon carrying in one hand a a six-pack of soda and a backpack filled with Oreos, and they've got a tablet to keep them from getting bored on the way. I don't know how that's going to work out if you try it. Somebody please try this and tell me how it goes. It's distracting you, and it's weighing you down, and you're not going to finish the race. We ought to pay attention then to the ones who've gone before 
They suffered, but they found God faithful. They set aside the things that weighed them down, that weren't necessary, the things that distracted them and called them in a different direction. And they, they focused on the God who is faithful. And he was not just faithful in the past. In Malachi 3, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Because God does not change, we can trust him, even if we're not seeing the results that we want. So set aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. God has been faithful. He does not change. And we focus on how he has been faithful so that we can endure. But faithfulness in the past is one thing. Good intentions of being faithful, that's one thing. But are those intentions and is that history enough? We see in these verses that we can be confident in the story of God because the, un, the unchanging faithfulness that he has shown in the past is carried on into the present where we see and we focus on that he is in control. We focus on how he is in control today. As we run the race, we see in verse 1, run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race is set before us. That's an image of a trail, a path being marked out for you to follow along. It's not a mad dash, a scramble over mountains, hills, every direction. You go the way you want. You just got to find your way to the finish line. Have you ever seen that, that classic movie, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World? Uh, Hilarious movie. I don't think anybody has seen it but me now. I'm learning. Both services, I'm just like, no. You know, old 1960s comedy about, okay, Bob's seen it. Thank you. Um, 1960s comedy about these uh, group of strangers in four different cars, eight different individuals who all witness an accident and, and find out from the guy who's been in the accident and is dying that he's buried a treasure. And he tells them all where the treasure is. And these eight strangers in four different cars all hear where the treasure is. And they set off on this madcap, hilarious journey, some of them by plane, by car, by boat, by insane means, all trying to get through whatever route they can take and through whatever obstacles they encounter, trying to find a way to get to that treasure in time before everybody else does. And it's this image of just going whatever path you can take by with whatever means you can go. And that, brothers and sisters, is not the race that we're called to run. We are given a race that's set before us, that's marked out a path that's not strange or confusing, but it's clear because God is in control and He has put it before us. He has blazed a trail and set up the markers and says, follow the path I've put you on. As we heard in our confession of our assurance of pardon earlier in Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The good life, the enduring race that God calls you to is already set before you. He's already planned out even the good works that you're called to do. But not just a few good works here and there. But as the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, in speaking of his life before he was even born, while he was still being made in his mother's womb, he says, your eyes saw my unborn substance. And in that time, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Think on that. Every one of your days was written already like a story that is laid out. 
God wrote out your days before even one of them came to be. He prepared a path for you, a race to run. And though that raises, honestly, some very difficult questions about the hard days and the difficulties that we experience, it also includes a wonderful, wonderful promise that God is completely in control of every day of your life. And if he is in control, then nothing overwhelms him, nothing surprises him, nothing can possibly steer things in a different direction than the good thing that he already has planned for you. If you are going to get to your destination, you can be sure that God has made the path all the way there. If he has already planned the days of our lives, then he has promised that we can handle everything that he plans for us. This is why in verses 1 and 2 it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. He's the one who started it all. By grace you've been saved through faith and this is a gift of God. He is the one who put all the pieces on the board and sets everything in motion. He's the one who started it all, the founder of our faith. But he is also the perfecter. That word perfecter is one who brings something to completion. Who makes sure it reaches the point that it needs to get to. As the psalmist says in Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. God did not say, here's a wonderful plan that I have for your life. It's going to go through some hard stuff. It's going to challenge you. It's going to require things that, that you don't understand right now that you can do. Good luck. I'll check in with you in about 50 years and see how you did. That is not gospel, brothers and sisters. The Lord will fulfill. The Lord will complete His purposes for me. And likewise, in Philippians 1, Paul says that He who began a good work in you, the founder of our faith, began, God began the good work. The same one who began that good work will bring it to completion, the perfecter of our faith at the day of Jesus Christ. God is in control. Focus on that when the race is difficult. Focus on that when you are weary. Or as verse 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's another call to look to Jesus and see that whatever we are enduring, he endured. Notice what the author has been doing. He's listing men and women who sought God's reward and endured through great difficulty, sometimes their whole lives long. And then he says, but even Jesus, even Jesus had to go through the cross. So if we are tired of following, if we are not seeing reward and rest, if we are tempted to question if we're doing something wrong, he assures us, no, no, if the path that you are on, if the race that you are running is making you weary and it's resulting in hostility and opposition and frustration and going against the grain of the world and the culture that you are in, you are on the same path that Jesus walked. When following Jesus seems hard and painful, that doesn't mean that we're on the wrong path. In fact, more likely, it shows that we are on the same path that Jesus took. It reminds me of a time when I was following my parents in the days before smartphones, GPS, when I had printed out directions on how to get where we were going. And we were up in Pittsburgh going to my hometown near Pittsburgh, Aliquippa. And uh, the, my parents, I'm trying to follow them, and they're going on roads that are not on my directions. 
and I'm getting nervous and I'm losing sight of them. And I called my mom and she's like, what, did you pass the Brighton hot dog shop yet? And, you know, I see the Brighton hot dog shop. Like, yeah, I just passed it. She's like, okay, then you're on the right road. We just passed it a little bit ago. Okay. And then, and then when you see this building that's halfway torn down, it, that's where you're going to turn left. That was, we're, we're just turning there right now. It's like, yeah, but the road's really bumpy and it seems to be like all messed up. Yeah, welcome to Pittsburgh. Let's just keep, you know. And step by step, she guided me through by telling me what they had gone through. Telling me what they had just seen. What they had just passed. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Are you going through frustration and difficulty? Are you dealing with opposition and persecution? You're on the same path that Jesus walked. There's nothing wrong with that. We are called to persevere because he is in control. And we see that because we are on the same road that Jesus took. Well, it's all well and good that God has been faithful and is in control, but what about the future? Any, uh, any page flippers here who always go to the end of a book to see how things end? You know, they want to make sure the dog doesn't die at the end of the book or whatever, and so you like flip to the end. Really, it's just me? Okay, okay there's a few. Okay, thank you. I just feel so out of place here now. We get a page flip to the end here where the author of Hebrews shows us what the ending of the story is. Verses 1 and 2, Let us run with endurance the race that he has set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where this all ends, ladies and gentlemen. This ends with Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. Now let me state this in the clearest possible terms because Easter is a time when many focus on the cross and the empty tomb. And that is well and good and that is right. There's nothing wrong with that. The cross of Jesus is the means by which he willingly gave up his life and died in our place, taking on himself the punishment of our sins. The empty tomb, the morning of the resurrection, that first Easter Sunday showed that it was no ordinary person who died. He was not just any other martyr, not just a holy man, but as Romans 1 says, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The fact that he died and rose from the dead three days later showed that he was something unique. He was God himself. But the cross was never the goal for Jesus. His goal was the throne. The cross was the path he had to take. The path that led there. Let that sink in. Yes, in love, he went to the cross. He even told his disciples it was for this reason that he came to earth. In order to be punished for our sins so that we might be forgiven. But the cross was not the goal. The throne was the goal. The cross was something he had to endure, something he had, he had to go through, but he prayed that there would be some way to escape it, some way to fulfill the purposes of God that was not the cross. And yet, when it was clear there was no other way, he was obedient to God's will and endured the cross. It's like the, uh, the training montages that you see in movies, like when the team is like, they, they, they just don't click as a team. And then we've got to do this, this short little two minute musical montage where they learn how to work together. Or when Rocky is getting ready the, for the fight and he's got to go through this beefing up scene, get in strong now, you know, like that's, 
That's a long process. That's, that's weeks, that's months. And if they showed all that in the movie, we would tune out because nobody wants to sit through the grueling parts, the nitty gritty, the hard things that you have to endure to get where you need to go. You know, Rocky is taking no delight in having to punch slabs of meat. He's got a bigger goal in mind. He's going to take down Apollo Creed. Okay? And likewise, Jesus had to endure something that if we could, we'd love to just squish that into a little musical montage and get it over with. But in our lives, we are called to endure what might take a long time, what might take a lifetime. But it's necessary to get to the greater thing that we're called to. As we see in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the joy set before you, child of God, run with endurance. Endure whatever it is that God calls you to endure. For Jesus, the joy set before him was the throne, the victory of God, that he would be victorious. Verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before him was the glory of kingship. The promise that he would reign over all creation. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that he is Lord. That was the joy set before him. But he couldn't skip to it. Because what good is a king with no citizens what good is a kingdom that is unpopulated and so in order to bring the rebels who had left his kingdom who had rebelled against god and said no it's our way not god's way who had said that in the garden and since then been banished from the kingdom of god he had to bring them back and the only way he could bring them back and have a kingdom full of children that he loved the only way to do that was the cross he has no victory without our salvation. Otherwise, death and the enemy succeed in their plan to undo God's good creation. And so in order to have the victory in which was his delight, he had to bring the children in which was his very heart back to his throne, back to his home. And because he has already defeated death, there's nothing now to stop his perfect plan from coming true. That's the point here. A resurrected Christ is the guarantee that God's plan is on track and is now unstoppable. No power, no enemy, no failure, no nation, nothing can stop what he has started. The resurrection of Christ is the ringing of a bell that cannot be unrung. It is the striking of a glorious death blow to death. And it secures everything he has planned from then on out. It's easy, brothers and sisters, to focus on your struggles and your difficulties and your frustrations and your disappointments and the way that life hasn't worked out the way you want to. And there's plenty of that to go around. But we are not called to focus on those. We are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. To see what became of His struggle. And to be made strong by the assurance that He will be victorious. And because of that, we have our promised reward. The resurrection is a time where we remember and we celebrate but it's more than just a celebration that one man, one time, rose from the dead. 
I mean, that in itself, if that's all it was, that would be cool. And that would be worth remembering and making note of and keeping in mind for Jeopardy. But it would not really be worth celebrating if all we're talking about is that one man, one time, rose from the dead. What we remember and what we celebrate and what makes a difference in our lives is not that one man, one time, rose from the dead. But in doing so, he put death to death. He defeated death itself. And what that means for us is this. Death is the great leveler. Death is the great vacuum that sucks up all hope and ambition and accomplishments and legacies and memories. Eventually they are gone if death is all there is. In Hebrews 2 The author said, through death, Jesus would deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's my favorite verse to think about at Easter. Death holds us as slaves because we live in fear of it. Either we are so fearful of what will happen at death that we live a certain way or we uh, collect certain things or or we eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die and there's going to be nothing after that. Death enslaves us and controls us. We are driven by that fear of morality that our lives will end, our stories will be forgotten, our legacies will crumble, our kingdoms will fade. Happy Easter! Honestly, if death is not defeated, that's where the story ends, and I don't like that story. What point then? Is there any striving? any being good, any helping others and loving others, if that's where it ends. The defeat of death through the death and resurrection of Christ changes that forever. It fills with meaning every breath that we take. It fills with meaning and purpose every conversation we have, every struggle we endure. Instead of our lives being brief moments in a story that end in nothing, our lives now become bold and steady steps on a path that we know with certainty ends gloriously and with great rejoicing. Because he who was faithful to the saints of old is still in control of your every moment today and has shown us by rising from the dead that he will without doubt, brothers and sisters, without doubt, be victorious. That is enough to not only tell you what kind of story you're in, but to give you the strength you need to endure on the path set before you. Let us prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which teaches us about this further. Join me as we pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus, which has done all that we needed it to do. And thank you that we can now reflect on it further on this day where we remember your resurrection. May it be it to us a, uh, not just a celebration or a time of family, but a time of being reminded and strengthened of your power at work in us through your spirit because of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. As our children rejoin us, we'll give them a moment to quietly and respectfully and awesomely work their ways back to their seats. This is amazing. Give them a moment to show off their artwork or whatever else they've done. Okay. And now they can tune in with the rest of us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Because kids, even if you're not about to take this today, we want you to know what's going on.
we want you to understand what's about to happen here. On that first Easter morning, the, the day of the resurrection, the women who were coming to embalm the body of Jesus arrived at the tomb expecting to find behind the stone a dead body. Instead, they found no body. And they found instead an angelic messenger who said, why are you looking for the dead among the living? He is not here. He is risen. In a sense, I have the same message. He is not here. Not physically. We're not eating his literal body and blood. That would be silly. Yes, thank you. He is risen. But what we have here is a reminder that because the children of God had flesh and blood and in their rebellion had forfeited their lives for eternity in order to populate his kingdom and save his children, he too had to take on flesh and blood, which we remember here at the Lord's table. The bread and the cup remind us of the flesh and the blood that Jesus took on and had to take on because the only way that his children could be saved is if he died in their place. And so we declare that when we take the bread and drink from the cup, that Jesus died for your sins in a human it wasn't a, a ghostly apparition it wasn't some spiritual vision it was real human flesh and human blood that God himself took upon for you because you deserved death so as we take this we confess that we deserve death from our sin and Jesus died in our place but we also confess that he's not here because he is risen. He was not just a holy man, a saint, a martyr, a wise teacher, or a prophet who died like every other person in history. He was the Son of God, sinless, and death could not hold him. And in power and in righteousness, he defeated death. And we declare that as we sit at this table. And we also declare that the story doesn't end there, but he will return to reign, to rule, to judge. And so we declare our obedience and our allegiance to him in sharing in his body and in his blood. We're saying, I want to be a part of you, Jesus. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to be a part of the story you've written because you've died for me and you rose again and I will follow you and live as you've called me to live. That's what we declare when we take the bread and drink from the cup. And so if that is not what you in your heart wish to declare, then I plead with you, don't take the bread and don't take the cup as it goes by. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to snicker at you. No one's even looking at you, okay? Just let it pass on by because to eat and to drink without meaning these things in your heart is to play act at faith. And the word for a person who play acts at faithfulness, at faith, is hypocrite. And we don't want you to do that for your own sake. Make this a moment instead to reflect, meditate, pray. And I, I would hope that you call upon the God who has given up his life and risen again. If you are one who calls yourself a believer but does so without grieving for your sin, without caring that it cost Jesus his life for you to be saved, and who even now goes on sinning without grief, without effort to change, who simply says God will forgive, that's his job. I'm saved by grace. I do what I want. You are warned, even by this table itself, that God will judge your sin. And that it is a weighty judgment that you cannot bear. 
turn from it and live. But to all who would come by faith, perhaps doubting, questioning, skeptical, fearful, insecure, fully aware of your failings and shortcomings, fully conscious conscious of how you have not lived up to the family name of Christ. Welcome to the table where the grace of God reminds you that he did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. It is not the healthy that need the doctor, but the sick. Bring your sin-sick, weary, doubtful, faint-hearted selves to the table of the Lord and receive his strength in return. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. If there's anything I've said that has made you hesitate, confess it before the Lord before we come to the table where his grace and his judgment are fully declared. Heavenly Father, thank you. We pray a blessing on this time and we give you thanks for how you provide for our needs in ways we could not have planned or imagined. And here we have a sign and seal of the promises you have made, the body and blood of our Savior represented here because you have died for us, Jesus, and you have conquered death and you will return. We celebrate it today and we stand in sober reflection on what it means and we pray that this will strengthen us to the life of endurance that is set before us. However short or long, you will be faithful for every moment of it. We thank you in the name of Jesus, who we remember here. Amen.